Hi, and welcome to the KC Praxis Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Jake McGregor. Good morning, my friends. I don't know what you had this morning, but I went to the butcher shop this morning, Fiore's Butcher Shop, which is a quaint little sandwich joint here in town, well known by everyone in the Lodi region uh, of a Lodian persuasion. Uh, I was ordering a set of sandwiches for our golf tournament tomorrow for our staff, and I saw in the pastry case a beautiful hunk of quiche. (laughs) I'm not normally a quiche guy, but this was like a sausage and bacon and cheesy, eggy, just beautiful thing going on there in the pastry case. And so I grabbed it. I have just eaten it. It was amazing. My belly is full. I also have here a cup of Death Wish coffee. Um, For those of you unfamiliar with Death Wish, it is actually, it builds itself the world's strongest cup of coffee. So they say that one cup of Death Wish has about 400 milligrams of caffeine to a normal cup of coffee. It's let's say 80 to 120. So I am feeling good right now. Yummy quiche, world's strongest coffee. I am wired and ready to go, which is good because we've got a brand new state-of-the-art teaching series set up for you guys that's going to go for the next couple months. Uh, This is material that we haven't taught here before. Um, Coming at us, uh, a... Uh, theology, right? A big overarching theme in the Bible that we've referenced several times, but we really haven't taken the time to flesh it out. And so I'm excited about it. Um, I hope you are too. I hope you're raring and ready to go. Uh, We are going to begin our teaching here this morning in the book of Genesis in chapter one. So again, the word praxis, like we've been saying since the very beginning, describes where our theology, our understanding of God and who he is and what he's up to in this world, right? It's where that becomes practical. How does our understanding of God and what he's doing affect our actual lives? And how do we practice our faith in this God, right? So that's praxis. We want to be people of good praxis. But if we want to be people of good praxis, we have to be people with good theology, right? We need to know what we're talking about. We need to understand it well. Uh, And so the Bible is full of these big theological themes, these overarching themes that define uh, the worldview of the Bible, our experience, like right, the human experience of God and the world around us. Um, There's these themes that course through almost the entire canon of scripture, themes like salvation, right? We have a God who saves, who hears the cry of his people and responds, or a theme like the kingdom. That's our namesake, kingdom community, right? The reality that there is a true kingdom, God's kingdom, and that has always been and always will be. And in our time and space, it is breaking in and it overcomes human kingdoms, right? It is, it's the true kingdom where all the other kingdoms are a parody of it. Uh, There's one true king, right? Jesus Christ on the throne now. Um, There's so many of these, right? Covenant would be another one. We love and serve God who covenants with us, who promises, right? He makes promises and he keeps those promises. He promises to make Abraham's nation a light to the nations. He promises redemption to Israel, right? Salvation for all mankind, that, that he will come again, right? And we have a God who's faithful to his covenant promises. Um, there's so many, but the one I want to hone in on, and I believe, you know, for my money, whoa, that's a, that's a guy with a big engine. Do you guys hear that? <laughs> We're revving up the engines for this big theme. 
Um, so we're going to look at the temple. Um, there's perhaps no sort of bigger unifying theme in the Bible than that. Um, and hopefully you'll understand why after this morning. Um, and we're going to get into this over the next few weeks and months. It literally courses from the very first chapter of the Bible to the last. It's a story beneath the story, the story of God's temple, the place where his presence will be on earth. Um, it's huge, right? It's beautiful. Um, and my hope is that understanding this aspect of this, this the, the, the temple, right? God's presence on earth, um, it will help us understand what it means to be human, what it means to be God's people, what it means to worship, um, what it means to live lives of worship. Um, and we want to kind of take this theme and expand it for you, right? So that we understand that, that the place where we worship is bigger than just a church building, right? It is bigger than, than a place we mark out or a designated time or space that we mark out. It is, it's the way God has chosen to interact with us. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter one. <laughs> Hopefully this is going to work. Okay. So to get started with this in, in Genesis chapter one, you have to have a bit of context. Genesis, uh, it's traditionally understood uh, and there's so many different opinions on this because it is an ancient book um, and the Bible is uh, just ruthlessly scoured over by uh, theologians and scholars and the like. But traditionally, we believe that Genesis was written by a man named Moses uh, and that it was written to and for a people, his people, this nation called Israel, who had experienced a brutal, systematic enslavement and oppression at the hands of Egypt. Uh, Egypt at the time was the most powerful empire in the known world. Um, and so this book, the book of Genesis, really the first five books of, of the Bible, what, what are called the Torah, um, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, that these books were written as one kind of overarching worldview and a way to understand, a way to help reframe or reshape this people, Israel's understanding of who they were. Why are they here? What is God up? What is the problem in this world? And what is the solution, right? What is God up to in this world? What is he doing to make the world right? Um, so the book of Genesis then becomes a worldview defining treatise uh, written by Moses, uh, put together by Moses, a set of scribes, and, and, and it's really Moses writing down what were a set of oral traditions that came to him. Um, and we believe because we're, we're people who believe that God interacts in such things that there's inspiration happening here. And so the, the spirit itself is involved in the writing of this book, right? But it is ostensibly written to help a people, Israel, figure out what's going on, right? What is happening in the world? Um, in their context, the ancient Near East, a people who have been delivered from a brutal, oppressive empire, okay? So um, so it's, this is how the universe was created, you guys. You may have heard other stories about the universe and how it works, right? But I'm here to tell you that this is ultimate reality. This is the way things are. Our faith holds that God chose this little nation of oppressed people to know his story and to carry his story, the true and beautiful story of who he is and his good world and our place in it to other nations. Um, so it's deeply important. And we have to remember that it's written in dialogue with other ancient worldviews and other understandings of who the gods are and how the world works. Um, 
just as a little aside, it's not the book of Genesis is not written in dialogue with our modern Western scientific worldview of how things work. Okay, we cannot shoehorn our sort of scientific linear uh, post enlightenment categories into this ancient book of poetry. Right, it will be an ill fit. So when we're talking about evolution or not, or Big Bang or not, or what happened to the dinosaurs, Genesis has no interest in trying to answer those questions. It's not trying to frame things on that level. It's trying to tell a bigger, more beautiful story of who God is in the face of other stories and other beliefs about who the gods are or what's happening in the world and who's in charge and who's not and all those things, right? Hopefully that makes sense to you. <clears throat> So when we begin in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, familiar verse, hopefully to you all, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, in Hebrew, the word beginning is reshit, and it refers not to a singular point in time, like on a Tuesday, God began, no, it refers to a period of time, like it's the beginning of the, in the beginning of time, when things were getting started, this is what was happening, right? So it refers to a period of time. And right away, it tells us something about God, right? Which is that God acts, right? In the beginning, God right? And that God acts creatively. And we can tell that God is alive and personal, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and we're going to get into just how intimate he is with that, right? But it is a God who is acting intentionally and with purpose. Everything that is, is because of God. So everything happening from the very beginning is happening with intention and it's moving toward a desired end because in the beginning, God acted, right? Okay, so it tells us something there about right away, we've got a worldview framing statement, okay? If you go on, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, okay? I'm just gonna pull just these few verses apart for you so you can tell what's going on in the book of Genesis, okay? And then we'll get kind of get into our, our, our specific reason for being here. So that phrase, the earth was without form and void, um, it describes again the way things were in the beginning. They were, and, and this literal Hebrew uh, phrasing for that is tohu wabohu, Right, which means wild and purposeless. In the beginning, it was tohu wabohu, right? This eerie Hebrew phrase. But then when God creates, it's barashit bara, right? So it's like this explosive from tohu wabohu to barashit bara. The language you guys hear is poetic. It's beautiful. It's actually written in verse. It's written as a song. It's meant to be sung, right? Tohu wabohu, barashit bara. There's this explosive thing happening in the midst of this purposeless, formless thing, okay? So you're meant to sort of see fireworks here and feel them too, right? Because that's what happens when we hear a song. We feel things. Um, so before, there was no meaning or reason, but because of God, there will now be meaning and reason. God gives it meaning and reason, okay? All meaning and reason come from God. You guys see how interesting this all is. And this is where it starts to get really fascinating. And the whole thing is fascinating, right? For our, But for our purposes, in all ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, and there are many, Egypt, Babylon, Sumeria, all have their own creation stories. The common themes for chaos, right? That which is out of control are night and waters, right? It's chaos, wasteland, uninhabitable, terrifying stuff. Night and water are terrifying. That is where chaos reigns. 
And along comes God, however that works, and he is the one in this story, the only one who can bring order to that. Our God brings order to the chaos, right? God brings order. Uh, and and there's, there's fascinating here. It says the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The word for spirit is ruach, which means breath. Uh, and if you were, I had the, the group do this on Sunday night, if you put your hand over your face and you begin to breathe, you will feel, you can do that right now. Put your hand over your face, right? Just single hand, right up, right up against your nose, not quite touching and start breathing. And when you say the word ruach, you can feel the breath bounce off your hand, right? It's warm. You, you feel something there. Um, it, that is the, the, the feeling that you're meant to get here, a spirit of God that is literally so close and so intimate with this thing um, that it's breathing into it, right? In other ancient creation myths, creation happens in opposition to the chaos, okay? So this is a big difference. The gods fight against the chaos, right? Or they fight against each other. The winning god associated with light defeats the losing god associated with darkness. And so the darkness and the waters are conquered, right? They are overcome. But they remain this terrifying thing. They remain evil. But in this story, God is intimately involved with all of it. The darkness and the waters belong to him. He hovers, broods, breathes into these things, right? He infuses them with meaning and life as well, right? So it all belongs to him. Um, and it isn't necessarily scary. <laughs> so there's so much going on here, okay? So continuing on. <clears throat> Sip of death wish. That's odd, isn't it? <laughs> Jake's drinking death wish. It's the name of the coffee. Um, <laughs> perhaps he shouldn't be drinking it. <laughs> okay. So this is Genesis chapter one, verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God calls it good, okay? Which is a functional observation. He's saying this works, right? It's not a moral judgment. This is good and this is bad. It's just like this works, right? Day and night, light and darkness, in line, in order, this is good, okay? <clears throat> this is the first of 10 times throughout this poem or song that God will speak uh, and, and, and he says, let there be something and it is so, okay? 10 times God speaks and something happens. We're gonna come back to that, okay? 10 is an important number. The fact that God speaks and something happens is also profoundly important, okay? Um, but this piece here, day and night, um, this is a statement about time, okay? In some ways, time began when the light and the darkness were separated and became day and night. Uh, so we experience to this day, day and night, right? The procession of light from darkness and back to light is because of God, which means tomorrow will come because of God. The seasons will come because of God. We will get what we need and we can relax about it. <laughs> Right? We can rest knowing that God ordered it all and set it all in motion. In the midst of other cultures and worldviews, right? This is being written into and in dialogue with other cultures where people had to beseech the gods, beg for rain, make sacrifices for the seasons. This God says, I set it all in motion with perfect intent and tomorrow will come. The seasons will change, right? You will be okay. And as a matter of fact, this God is the source of light. Notice that the sun and the moon don't make an appearance until way down in verse 16, okay? 
in the midst of cultures and worldviews that almost universally worship the sun and moon as chief among them, they're the most important. This God wants you to know, I actually created the sun and moon. They're not a big deal, right? The big deal is I've separated light from darkness and you can relax, right? I designed this all and it is moving forward, okay? That word separate is also hugely important. Hopefully you're taking notes. This is just all such fascinating stuff. Uh, it says he separates what's above from what's below. He separates the chaos waters from the land, right? Over and over and over again, God separates things. He is bringing order to things. He's saying this and that. The one thing he does not separate here, though, is profoundly important. And write this down. God does not separate himself from the process, okay? In the midst of cultures that believe the gods are way up there, way out there, separate from us, God wants you to know that he is in this, through this, organizing this, not distant, right? But ruach, close, intimately involved with it all, right? There is no spirit and physical here. There is no heaven way up there, earth down here. It is all one and it is all beautiful and it's all both physical and spiritual and God is in it and involved with it all. Okay. So again, though you have just the first three days of creation there, and they're telling us how the universe works, right? And over and over and over again, you have this theme. Where you thought it was one way, it is not, right? Where you thought the universe worked this way, God is actually telling you it does not. It works his way. Where you thought the gods were distant, God is close. Where you thought you needed to beg for rain, God is telling you he has it ordered how he wants it. Where you weren't sure tomorrow would come, right? Unsure about tomorrow, God is telling you it will come and it will be okay. Where you thought the chaos and the waters and the darkness were ultimate evil, God is telling you they all belong to him and he pushes them back, right? Like it all belongs to him. He separates it all, okay? Um, in some ways you could say there is a victory over it all here, but really it's you can see it's so much more than that, right? God is the source of it all, right? He is the source of all power and he wills his power into this world through his voice. He speaks and it is so. Um, I want to kind of hone in on this idea of speaking for a minute. If you were, uh, if you have a minute, you can flip in your Bibles over to the, the book of Psalms in 74, Psalm 74. Uh, so the people who heard this ancient poetry, right? Israel, they understood what this all meant and it worked its way into their writings and their poetry. Um, this is centuries later, Psalm 74. God's people are in a fight now, right? They're in a war of some sort, fighting for their lives. And the enemy seems to be winning, and they reach back to their ancient story, right? To Genesis 1. And this is what they say. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But my God is king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. You can see, God, there is no, there's no chaos there, right? It was you who opened up the springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter, right? So God is my king from long ago. Now, this is important. In the ancient world, in the culture into which Genesis speaks, the only ones who could speak and make something so were kings, pharaohs, later on Caesars, right? 
a king speaks and it happens. In the beginning, God speaks, right? Before any king ever spoke, God spoke. And this is in all, the, there's so much of this in the Psalms. This is from Psalm 33. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water, gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. <clears throat> right? So in the midst of a world and a culture where earthly kings speak, and that and that means something. Some group is going to be now warred against, or some people are going to be enslaved, enslaved, or right, or worse than that, right? When a king speaks, something happens, and it's not always good. God speaks, and it is so. And when God speaks, very different sorts of things happen, right? Order is brought, life springs forward, a world teeming with possibility and wonder and creative potential is opened up, right? When God speaks, blessing comes. And this is where we start to get closer to where we're going. I want you to go back to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this is the pinnacle of creation, you guys. This is the climax of the song, right? It's the crescendo. Even in the way the verse is written in the original language, the tone almost changes here. Okay, there's more words in the line. Um, and in the middle of this beautiful world that has been spoken into existence, humans are placed. And it says, let us make man in our image. Um, and then the, 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 the human beings are, are given the opportunity to sort of act on behalf of this God. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, who acts on behalf of the gods, right? It's kings. It's, again, Caesar's pharaohs. The sphinx guards the tombs of the ancient kings because they were the representatives of the gods. There is something holy going on in those pyramids, right? Um they have dominion on behalf of the gods they serve, these human kings. But the Genesis story affirms that not kings, but all people are representatives of God. Humans are given dominion, right? Not just a king, but everyone has a stake in this game. And this right here is perhaps the starkest contrast uh, from Genesis worldview, right? The Genesis worldview to other ancient cosmologies and worldviews is who represents God to the world right? For Egypt, it was Pharaoh. For Israel, it's all of us. Sent into the world to continue the creative work of blessing the world that God said, God set in motion. This is, it's royal language, right? God comes onto the scene as king and he speaks and it happens, right? The psalmist says, my God is king from long ago. This one speaks and it happens. And then his image bearers, God's image bearers now exercise his rule and authority on his behalf, not to further their own ends, right? Not to take or gain or somehow keep the blessing for themselves, but to act on behalf of a king who wants to extend his blessing into all creation, take it and carry it forward in the way that I've set it in motion, right? Order it, steward it, rule over it in, in, in a way that, that 
causes continued life and flourishing and sprouting, right? Things are going to continue to grow because you are here, my people. You have to understand, okay? In Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, where they have creation myths, those creation myths are serve to legitimize earthly power, right? My creation myth says my God defeated your God and my God has made me king to act over all of you, which means you all now serve me, okay? In Egypt, right, in the midst of an unbelievable oppression under just this sort of power structure, right, where the gods serve to legitimize earthly power, right, comes this good news. Wait, you're telling me that I bear the image of God? Right? That, that turns the world upside down. This little nation of image bearers right, turn the world upside down. And you see this over the course of the rest of the first five books of the Bible. right? They were given egalitarian leader, leadership structures. Seventy elders would gather together to make decisions. right? They forgave all debts every seven years. right? They left the edges of their land unharvested so the poor could come and glean. Yes, right. they welcomed the stranger and the sojourner. Yeah, it's almost like they had a whole different understanding of the way the universe is wired, right? It's almost as if they believed that God started something good and beautiful, and it was their job to continue doing what he was doing, right? Bringing this, his creative, right, blessing activity into the world. And it goes even further, okay? And this is, we're getting closer here, all right? The book of Genesis describes people as being made in the image and likeness of God, Image and likeness are words in the ancient world that almost always describe idols, okay? Little gods that would be placed in places of worship or temples that depicted who God was, okay? Idols were treated as the gods, right? And they were placed in temples as representatives of the presence of whatever God it is that you were there to worship, okay? You made an image of your God and you worshiped that image, right? Because that image represented God to you. In these verses, God is seen as making an image of himself and it is you and I, right? And later on in, in Moses' sort of written book, they're commanded in no uncertain terms not to make idols, right? It's one of the most repeated warnings in all the Torah, the first five books, right? Do not make idols ever. Idols are bad, right? You get this. If you get nothing else reading the first five books, you're going to get that. Why? Why is that so important? Well, because the only image of God that ever needed to be created has already been created, right? Humans are not God, but we represent him, right? And we represent him in all the earth. He says, go and fill the earth, right? You little image bearers of mine. Go and fill the earth, bringing my creative blessing, every representing me wherever you go. So if you go and fill the earth, where is God's temple? Yeah, yep. In the beginning of all things, God is building a temple, right? The whole world is his temple. And it is filled with his image bearers, right? Humans, you and I, who are meant to be the representation of his presence wherever we go. His presence on earth was never meant to be found, you see, in kings and temples and buildings and idols. Those are stories that other cultures are telling, right? But they were always only a shadow of the truth that God is king, that his temple is all of creation, that his image is in us, which means God can be seen whenever and wherever his people are living their lives as they were purposed to do, right? Bringing blessing and order and his good rule and reign everywhere they go. 
And so the rest of it, right, the rest of that stuff, it's at best distractions, right? The kings and rulers and presidents and political parties, right? Those, those who hold sway, they aren't really in authority. To suppose they are is to forget who the true king is. All authority is given by God, right? You read this throughout the rest of the scriptures. So those who sit in authority, if they're bearing God's image into the world, if they're carrying his authority in the way that he designed them to do, then yes, right? That is good authority. But most of the time we know that's not the case, right? These people have forgotten their true king. So you can see where it all becomes a distraction. The allegiance that we pay... (laughs) becomes a major issue. You could go, you could dive in deep there, okay? Or the things we can hold in our hand. That's another thing, right? The fruit from the tree that we think will give us knowledge. The money we store up, the phones we cling to. What is it? What are the idols that we hold on to that, that could never offer true meaning, right? Because the only image that was ever meant to be born into this world, we already have, right? In our relationships and the others that are that are with us. The temples we could we construct, okay? And again, this gets us closer. It could be our homes. It could be uh, our banking systems. could be a massive tower to the sky. could be our church buildings. God's presence can never be limited to those spaces, right? God's presence can't necessarily really be reached by those spaces. At worst, those spaces in God's good world distract us from all the other places and spaces that God might be at work, right? These kings and idols and temples are distractions at best, but at worst, they are what we call sin because they cause us to miss the mark. They take us out of the good work of creation that he designed us for. We see that with Adam and Eve, right? When they take the fruit, as if this fruit could ever provide more than what God had already given. We see it when the people, again, build that tower, Babel, right? We see it when David asks God if he can build God a house. We're going to get there in a couple weeks. God always intended to be present with us everywhere, wherever we go. And after the fall, right? Because things aren't that way anymore, right? There is this thing called the fall. Um, but after the fall, God was has been working, right? His project from that moment right up to the moment that the veil of the temple is torn in two with Jesus on the cross. His presence flooding out into the world once again, right? God has been after, he's been coming back, right? Into relationship, into his temple, which is the world. <laughs> okay, now notice Genesis chapter two, verse one which, by the way, are the last lines of the song, okay? Two, one through three are actually a part of the song. For some reason, whoever it was that put the chapter markers in the Bible later on um, missed the, they missed a big one here, right? The song finishes in Genesis 2, 3, okay? Genesis 2, 2, chapter 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, this is where I get to go a little like Bible nerd. (laughs) Notice all the mentions of the word seven. The seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Then God blessed the seventh day. That's three mentions of the word seven. In the original language, it's even better. There are actually three lines in this paragraph that have seven words each. There are seven words in Genesis 1.1. There are two poetic sets of seven words in Genesis 1.2. There are seven paragraphs in the song, each marked by the words evening and morning. 
Each of the keywords in Genesis 1-1, God, land, heavens, are repeated by multiples of seven throughout the rest of the song. You could actually go on and on and on with these. You get the point, though. The scholar Casuto says that to suppose these experiences, or sorry, to suppose these appearances of the number seven are mere coincidence is not possible. The numerical symmetry is, as it were, the golden thread that binds together all the parts of the section. Um, there's like a really deep uh, rabbit hole you could fall down in biblical numerology. I'm not one of those guys at all. Okay, but clearly in this chapter, the ancient author is telling us something here right? All these sevens, the simplest interpretation of all these sevens is to recognize that God, right? It's, an, it's the number in the ancient world and in, in ancient Israel associated with perfection. So God has ordered and organized his creation perfectly, right? And in the perfect creation, humming throughout all of it, like the bass note, right? Or the melody is this idea of Sabbath, okay? Of rest and peace and worship, right? It the, the final lines of the song are about Sabbath, right? When God rested the seventh day, the Sabbath day, to cease as he ceased, right? And look around at his world and his work and all the blessings within it and to stand in wonder, right? To stop running, to stop striving, to stop breathing so hard and cease. God ceased, we cease, and we recognize that the life we have, the world we live in, the work God is up to all around us in the temple, which is our whole world, recognize that it is all very good, right? But that theme, the, 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 the perfection, the sevens, right? It's not just confined either to this one day because it courses throughout the entire song. And therefore, through the entire act of creation, it's the melody. It's almost like we're supposed to notice God and worship God and bless and be blessed by God the whole time because his temple is the whole thing. There are other places you see these repetitive sevens. You see it in the making of the tabernacle. Um, after God's people have wandered away, he gives them this tabernacle, this tent. And the description of the making of the tent happens in the same sort of poetic pentameter uh, as, as the Genesis story. Um, God is giving his people, by his grace, a new way to meet him and to enjoy his presence, even in a world that is broken. And then you see it in the book of John, where there are seven signs, right? John uh uh, the gospel of John is known as the book of the seven signs. There are seven signs that Jesus performs, right? Seven miracles demonstrating Jesus' authority and his kingship over everything. And it starts with water into wine and it ends with the resurrection of Lazarus, right? Death itself. Each of these signs talk about Jesus' um, authority over creation, right? And then the signs stop until there's a brand new sign. The eighth sign or the beginning of a new seven, right? The dawning of a new creation. Jesus is resurrected. And oh, by the way, Mary mistakes him for the gardener. <laughs> John is inviting us, right? The book of John to recognize that in Jesus, the magnificent work of creation, new creation is happening in a brand new way. And that God's temple now spans the earth once again. And then you see the sevens in the book of Revelation, right? There are seven bowls poured out, right? Trumpets and, and all the rest. Uh, and it ends with God, uh, his presence among his people in the whole earth, which is his temple once again. Um, we're going to get into all this stuff uh, over the next 
weeks and months. Um, we're going to look in depth at the tabernacle. We're going to look in depth at the temple um, and the way they used it and what happened there. But you guys can see where this idea of God's presence on earth with us, this is, <laughs> this is so fundamental. It's like the cornerstone of the foundation um, of our worldview, our belief in God and who he is. Um, and the thing that Jesus came to restore, relationship, connection between us and the God who hovers, right? Um, there's so much here. I hope this is helpful to you. I hope it's intriguing to you. I hope um, it spurs you on to want to look further. Uh, but for now, I'm going to leave you uh, with this big, the beginning of a big theme. Um, I hope we'll see you guys soon. Uh, Praxis next week. It's always first and third Sundays of the month. Um, 5 p.m. here at 180. If you're not a part of a KC group, our KC groups over the next weeks and months are going to be going through this as well. Um, we are going to be putting up podcasts uh, that, that will be covering different material. So same theme, different material um, on the off weeks. So join us for the rest of this study. I'm super excited about it, uh, as you can tell. All right. I have in my insulated cups still some hot Death Wish coffee. Um, I'm going to finish it up. We're going to get ready for our golf tournament here at the 180. Uh, but for now, I leave you. Have an amazing, blessed week. Um, notice God, right? Notice that he's with you. He is everywhere. He is all around you. Your world is his temple. He is there. You are his image bearer in it. Um, maybe that'll help us see the world a little differently. All right, you guys. Bye. We hope that you enjoyed this week's teaching. To connect with us and for more resources, you can find us on social media as Casey Praxis or email us at caseypraxis at 180lodi.org.